Uh, well, good morning. My name is Brian Paget, and I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer Church. And someone stole my water, so if anyone wants to confess and bring it back up here, that would be really nice. But don't worry about it. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. Um, now it's uh, it's an honor to be here. With oh, sorry, I totally hit your Facebook mic. Sorry, Facebook people. Um, I I'm, it's an honor to be here and get to do this. Uh, we enjoyed being here last. Uh, May, uh, I guess last month, May 22nd with you guys and getting to do the meal afterwards. We thought originally the plan was the reason we weren't going to do a meal afterwards because we were going to meet at Will Rogers where we normally meet. Uh, and then there's not really a place to eat there afterwards. So we were going to invite people to meet with one another and go out afterwards or meet during the week sometime. And so I want to encourage you uh, to meet someone from another church, someone you don't know, and maybe get their number. Maybe you can't go to lunch today, but maybe sometime this week y'all can meet up and uh, maybe have someone over to your home or meet for coffee or lunch. and Just get to know one another uh, better. Uh, and so I want to encourage you to do that, but we're honored to get to be back here and happy to, to, to serve you all. We know that uh, meeting here at 11 o'clock, for some folks, that's, that, that's to try to change it and go over to Will Rogers at 1030 would have been a, uh, y'all might not have come. Ray, you probably would have been like, nope, I'm protesting. Still come to First Baptist anyway and try to do his own thing. It's, we don't want that. I'm just kidding. Ray's a good guy. He would never do that. Um, but this morning, so what we've been doing, we've been going through Luke. Uh, and so we're going to continue through our series through Luke. So we're, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 9. Uh, so Kevin, the way we do things is the scripture that we read is the scripture that we're preaching through. And so Luke 9, 1 through 22 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, and and uh, we're, the series is called The Gospel According to Luke. And it's important to understand the four gospel accounts that we have are the gospel according to those writers. And they write very distinctly. And now we have what they call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they share a lot of stuff. Uh, and then you got John that shares some stuff, but it's, it's very different than the other three. And so it's not considered one of the synoptic gospels. Uh, but we've been going through Luke, and we're now in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. Uh, and Luke chapter 9 is an interesting chapter because it's in this chapter where Jesus is going to announce, or it's going to be said of him, that Luke's going to say that Jesus sets himself resolutely to Jerusalem. And we know why he's going to Jerusalem, right? He's going to Jerusalem to die on a Roman cross, and he's going to be buried, and he's going to be raised three days later. He knows what the plan is, and he introduces that in this text today of what the plan actually is. Where I want us to begin is I want to begin with a question, okay? I'm going to ask you a question. It's a rhetorical question. So if you're one of those that answers them out loud, don't this time. Keep this one inside. The question is, who do you say that Jesus is? Okay, I want you to answer. I want you to think about your answer to that question because it's the most important question you're ever going to answer in life. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the question Jesus is going to ask his disciples here later on in chapter 9 that we'll look at today. But I want you to be thinking about that this whole sermon. Who do I say that Jesus is? And I don't want you to, look, because the reality is, is 2,000 years after Christ has died, buried, and resurrected, we know the answer. If you've been around church, you know the answer to that. But I want you to understand that Peter, just spoiler alert, he gets the answer right. He speaks up. And he gets the answer right. But here's the funny thing about Peter's correct answer. He gets the answer right, but he has no idea what he's actually saying. Oh, they brought me water. Thank you, son. That's my son yelling. And uh, he gets the loudness from me, so it's our thing. But <clears throat> Peter gets the answer right, but he doesn't really understand the answer. Here's why I bring that up. 
Because your answer might be right. In fact, if you've grown up in church, like we, the church joke is, right, what's the answer to the question? It's always Jesus, right? That, that's the big joke. It's like, oh, what's the que- answer? You know, in Sunday school, oh, the, well, Jesus. Like, oh, how did you know that? You know, it's because we're in church. It's always the answer. But here's the thing. If you're passing an, a, a short answer, like fill in the blank test, you'll probably ace it. But if it's an essay test, you might not. Because then the follow-up is going to be, what does this mean that your answer to Jesus? What do you mean when you say Jesus is the fill-in-the-blank, the Savior, the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah? What do you actually mean by that? What does that mean that he is those things? And that's where it starts to get complicated. And Peter, who answers very boldly, he doesn't understand what he's saying. And, and there's, I'm saying that to, as good news. You're going, that doesn't sound like good news. It is good news because we get real puffed up and arrogant about how awesome we are at answering about Jesus. And then we look like fools all throughout life, don't we? I mean, some of you, you look back over your life and go, man, if I could go back and talk to 20-year-old me, right? I mean, I don't know the person that's been like, man, 20-year-old me was nailing it. <laughs> what happened to me? Hopefully you've progressed from there. You've grown from there. You're not the same punk, you know, anymore. Or not nice person. Maybe I shouldn't say punk. Or arrogant person. Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Let's look at what goes on here. Now, I'm just going to, we're going to go through 22 verses, okay? And and I'm going to do my best to not... Not preach like I normally do at Redeemer while preaching like I do at Redeemer. And that's a timing thing, okay? So we'll see what happens. All right. I haven't preached in four weeks, so good luck. Chapter 9, verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Let's stop there. All right, so here's kind of what's going on. Jesus is calling the twelve to him. And you got to pay attention to these verbs here. The words call, the words uh, gave, and the words sent here in the first few verses. When he calls them together to himself, this is like a subpoena from the court. Like you have to appear. When you've been subpoenaed by a court, there's an authority that's calling you to it. And so when Jesus calls him to himself, it's not like an invitation that you can reject if you want to, whatever else. It's an authoritative call to himself. We know earlier in Luke, he's already appointed these 12 as apostles. Apostle means one who has been sent under authority, one who's been sent with authority even. And so these are not just, these are disciples, but they're, they're a little bit more than that. Now he has called them his sent ones, the ones who bear his authority that have the ability to go out under his power and do certain things. Now he says here, he calls them to himself and it's a communal call. You need to understand that because in the great commission of Matthew 28, it's a communal call. 
We, we really in America have got to get rid of this individualistic, overly individualistic understanding of things in Scripture. There's far more communal going on. In fact, the call on people's lives, even Paul himself, go read Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas are sent out only after the elders gather together, pray over them, and affirm that the Holy Spirit has set them apart to go. What we tend to do is come to the pastor later and say, hey, I received a call to be a missionary. We all send me overseas. And as one who's worked for mission agencies, my plea to you would be, stop doing it that way. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many people would come to mission agencies and you're like, why are churches sending these people? I worked for an agency, 80% of the people we sent to Europe had never once shared their faith in America. What are they doing overseas? Well, their church thought they were missionary equality, you know. They were nice, they showed up to everything. So they've got to be a good Christian. When Jesus is setting apart these 12, he's not doing it right out of the gate. These people have been walking with him for a long time. They've watched what he's done. They've heard him preach and say things like, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to proclaim the year of Jubilee. In Luke 4, when he says that, he quotes Isaiah 61 saying, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he goes on to do it. He starts healing people of diseases, setting people free from demons. He starts ministering the gospel, preaching the kingdom of God, seeing souls saved. And they've watched this. So when, they, when Jesus calls them together, they have been walking with him for quite some time. And it says he gives them power and authority. Pay attention to that. He gives them power and authority. You cannot give someone something you don't have. So Jesus has power over demons and the authority over demons and disease, and he gives it to the apostles. So who do you say that Jesus is? Start paying attention to who he actually is. Who has the power over demons and disease? Now, he's been showing this all along throughout Luke. He's been showing that he has power over demons. He's even raised the dead at this point. The story right before this, uh, Jairus' daughter, is it Jairus? I think is a, the synagogue ruler, comes to him. His daughter's died. He's just raised her from the dead. Now, I don't know about you. I don't necessarily have that power. If I do, I've been sitting on it for a long time, and I've never raised anybody from the dead. They've watched Jesus calm the wind and waves and say, who is this that has power over the wind and the waves? They've seen Jesus tell Peter, throw your net to the other side. And he catches so many fish, the nets are breaking. They fill up two boats, they're sinking. Which we studied that and it was the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars, basically, that Jesus brought in in one catch. Who is this person? Well, Peter hits his knees that day, right? And says, Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. He knew who he was. But the question of who Jesus is, this is the one who has power and authority. Now he gives it to his apostles. And then it says he sends them to what? Proclaim the kingdom of God. He didn't, he didn't send them to just preach the gospel. He sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God. Meaning, as you go out, they're to do exactly what Jesus himself was doing. He's ushering in the kingdom of God. He's there to announce. That's what proclaim means. Announce that the kingdom of God is now here. Things are going to be different. It's the upside down kingdom. When you look at the kingdoms of the world, that's not this kingdom. This kingdom is going to be different. 
And, and that's hard for us to understand, especially in America, that's a, that we fought a war literally to get rid of kings and kingdoms. We didn't want that kind of stuff. Like, so for us to hear Jesus is king, we kind of cringe a little bit. We prefer democracy, Jesus. I'd like to have a vote in the kingdom of God. But that's because we don't understand the kingdom of God. We understand it through the filter of the king and, king and queen of England or the kings and queens of this world, the empires of this world, even through America. And what we need to understand is that the empires of this world are Babylon. Now, I know I, I got to be careful because next weekend is July 4th weekend. And how dare you say America is Babylon? But it is. Now, before you hear that as hate everything about America, it's evil. No, no, no. Babylon actually did some good things. It's not that everything these countries or empires do are evil. It's just that they're not God's kingdom. They're counter to his kingdom. And so that's why we have to speak out on things like Christian nationalism and things like that. This syncretism between the church and the state where we want them to be one and the same. This theocracy or theonomy or any of those things. That the kingdom of God is separate. You come out from it. You're going to be different. You're leaving the kingdom of darkness. You're entering the kingdom of light. You're going to be a distinct people. When he sends them to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, it's the good news of the kingdom of God. That it is here now. And it's crazy because what he says later on is that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a slave, be a servant. <laughs> That's not the way we think of things, is it? That's not how we view the world. So he, he calls them to himself. He gives them his power and authority. He then sends them out in his power and authority to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and heal. And look what he does next. He gives them the anti-youth camp packing list. Right? Take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money. Don't have two tunics, which was like, basically, don't take extra underwear. No toothbrush, no toothpaste. Leave your Bible and your teachable heart and depart. I'm sorry, they probably took their Bibles in a teachable heart. But he tells them to take nothing. They're going to be completely dependent on the provision of God and the hospitality of the people. Enter a home. If, they give you, if their peace returns to you, stay with them. If not, and he says, some will reject you. Dust your feet off and move to the next town. Whew. Now, we don't get the dusting the feet off thing. Most of us, you walk into people's homes with your shoes on all the time. That's a very American thing, right? We bring our nasty in with us, but we also don't lick the carpet. So you know, it's like it plans out, you know? But, but here's the thing, like in many cultures around the world, they'll take their shoes off where they enter in because the bottoms of their feet are going to be the dirtiest parts. They'll come in. Uh, and so the idea of dusting your feet off was that before they would leave Gentile lands, they would dust their feet off lest they bring in the contaminated Gentile land dirt into their dirt. And, and so this idea was a testimony against them. It was a way against. So what he's saying is when they don't return hospitality, when they don't return peace to you, oh gosh, man, this thing is really, we're going to have a war. Anyway. I normally move around, so I'm trying to help everybody out and stay positioned right here. So I'm doing my best, I promise. My feet are kicking this thing. I'm going back and forth. Y'all see the whole thing. I don't need to explain it. But anyway, 
So, so these guys are to go in these homes, and when they return the peace, they say, stay there, because it's offensive to keep bouncing around from home to home like you're a celebrity. That's what he's pushing back against. He's, no, no, you don't go around like I'm some big shot. Look at me, I'm Peter. I was sent by Jesus. I'm awesome. Everybody wants me in here. No, no, you go to the first place that welcomes you, and you stay. Honor them. And then when you're done in that town, you move on to the next town. And when they reject you, you dust off your feet. It's a testimony against them. So they do exactly what Jesus says. They depart. They go through all the villages. And they're proclaiming Christ. They're preaching the gospel. And they're healing everywhere. So some really cool stuff is happening, right? Now, let's, let's depart from there for a second. The disciples have now gone out. The apostles have gone out. All of a sudden, Luke draws our attention to Herod, the Tetrarch. Let me read it again, what he says. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said that by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, by others that the pro- one of the prophets of old had risen. So Herod's hearing the news of Jesus, and he's confused, he's perplexed. Who is this man? That's what he's asking. And people say, oh, you remember that dude John the Baptist that you beheaded? He's back! He's like, no, 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 that's not true. I beheaded that dude. I saw his head fall off. It's not him. I'd recognize that face anywhere. It's Elijah. Remember, the Jews were expecting Elijah to come back. That was what the Old Testament had talked about. And they're like, that's him. Because Elijah was the prophet who did miracles. Well, what's Jesus been doing? Miracles. It's Elijah. He's, nah, that doesn't seem right. It's one of the other prophets of old. In Matthew, the account says it's Jeremiah. They say one of the prophets of old has come back. Here's what they're saying about Jesus around town. They're saying about Jesus that he's really, really special and important. They're not saying negative things about him. To be Elijah or one of the prophets of old or to be John the Baptist raised from the dead, that's not negative stuff. They're not comparing him to someone evil. Now, the Pharisees and scribes are later going to call Jesus Beelzebub and Satan. That's another name he's going to get called by some folks. But the the town, the people that are responding to Herod are saying, hey, he's one of these people of old. Now, they anticipated Elijah coming back and the miracles would indicate, okay, maybe he's Elijah. But they understood he's a prophet. What, What were the prophets doing in the Old Testament? They were speaking to the people of God. You see, everybody gets angry today at prophets in America. When you speak out against the church, people want to cut you off and disassociate with you. But they got no problem condemning the culture. I mean, drop into any church in America right now and everybody's celebrating Roe. And they'll condemn abortion, they'll condemn all these other things. Most of them, it's not even an issue within their church. The sad thing is, it's probably more of an issue than they realize, because if one in four women have had an abortion, then statistics tell me right now, some of you in this room have had one. And you're probably terrified to bring it up in the context of a church. Why? Because we've made very clear what we hate. But you try to condemn anything within. Well, that's the same thing with the prophets in the Old Testament. You're an unjust people. You know what, Amos? You should die. Habakkuk, that one went well. Like, do we need to get Joel? Ezekiel and Jeremiah, (laughs) he's the funny one because he's like, God, you seduced me into this. You tricked me. I'm proclaiming all this truth and they hate me. It's your fault. So Jesus must be doing something, saying something. That tells them, this man's a prophet. 
He's one of the old prophets that's come back. He's Elijah. Or, you know why John the Baptist got beheaded? Because he told the king that what he was doing, sleeping with his brother's wife, was wrong. It was sinful. He called out his sexual morality, and he ultimately got his head cut off before it, for it. He spoke truth to power, and he died for it. Hello. That's who they think Jesus is. Jesus is doing something that people are seeing as a good thing, and some people are not seeing as such a good thing. But he's not being identified by people that would be considered evil. Herod's not convinced. So it says, he heard, he's like, John, I beheaded, but who's this about I hear such things? And he says this, and he sought to see him. Now think about this for a second. Jesus calls the 12 to himself, right? That same word call is summons or subpoena. As king, Herod could have subpoenaed Jesus to his court and Jesus would have had to go. If King Herod really wanted to meet Jesus, he could have called him to the palace and questioned him for himself. I say that to point that Luke's point here is to show that while King Herod was sought to see him, he really wasn't that interested in knowing who Jesus actually was. He wasn't that much of a threat to him. He was concerned about what he was hearing, but had he been that concerned, he would have called him to himself. We know later when Jesus is arrested and stands before Herod, he mocks him and ridicules him. But you got to understand, this Herod piece is pretty important. We'll come back to it here in just a second. But let's, let's move on. Let's see what happens when the 12 apostles return. All right, let's keep reading verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. just want you all to remember. So if I say it like that, you'll go, oh, I'll never forget that. Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, listen to this. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away and go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to the disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. We've all heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But I want you to hear this, and I want you to think of it in light of the question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? So the, the apostles come back to Jesus, and they're debriefing with him their journey, their missionary journey. I'm sure they're elated. We healed people. <clears throat> we, saw, you know, we saw miracles. We saw all this stuff. They're just telling Jesus all the things they did. We proclaimed the kingdom of God. We saw this. They probably talked about the rejection and the hospitality. And they're worn out. Jesus knows because Jesus himself has been doing this. And what is Jesus' common practice? He retreats away to get some rest. So he takes them on a retreat. Guys, let's go out to Bethsaida. Let's get some rest. It's a good idea. But then what happens? It says the crowd finds out where they are and they come follow them. Now, how many of y'all been on a retreat before and a crowd showed up? Right. It doesn't generally happen. Sorry, I'm choosing coffee over water right now. It was a, probably a bad decision. 
We're going with it. So, so they're going out on a retreat, and this crowd shows up. And this is a huge crowd. It says 5,000 men. They estimate that with women and children included, it would have been anywhere from 10 to 15,000 people show up. Now, if I'm one of the apostles and I'm worn out, I'm going like, oh, come on. Gee, just wanted some respite. Just wanted to get away. You know what Jesus does? It says he welcomes them. Man, we are not like Jesus, are we? <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> like my first thought's not, let's show some hospitality. I'm like, no, I'm worn out from showing hospitality. You leave. Sorry, that was probably pretty rude, right? We would never do that. But isn't that us? Let's be honest. I'm on a retreat. The last thing I want is 15,000 people showing up. And man, I, trust me, I've had that happen a million times. It's exhausting. When we were a mega church before the pandemic, my goodness. You got, couldn't, yeah, couldn't go anywhere in town without 15,000 people showing up. That's a joke, by the way, if you're wondering. Redeemer's never been a mega church. But he welcomes them. And what does he do? He speaks to them of the kingdom of God and he heals anyone who needed healing. And this is an all-day affair. That's why it tells us, now the day began to wear away. <laughs> like it's hitting like 4, 4.30 in the afternoon and the disciples are like, you know, Jesus, it's getting late. <laughs> Maybe it's time to send these folks away. Maybe it's time to let them go to the surrounding villages, find some lodging, get some food, refresh. It's late, man. We've been doing this all day. They haven't done anything. They've just been sitting there. It says Jesus healed them. So they say, send the crowd away. It's weary now. The day's been wearing on. We're tired. It's late. We got no food. And we're in a desolate place. Remember that. A desolate place. And what does Jesus say? Verse 13. You give them something to eat. <laughs> now, think about this for a second. These 12 have just been sent with his power and his authority to cast out demons, to cure diseases, to proclaim the kingdom of God. They are testifying and reporting to Jesus what they've witnessed, what they've been a part of. You would think in that moment, they might go, well, yeah, we can turn this little bit of food we got into 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 satisfied tummies. We can do this. But they didn't, did they? Because they're like us. If someone came in here, if this place was packed with 15,000 people, heck, 1,000 people, and all I had was a sack lunch, I promise you my first thought is not, I bet I could pray and ask Jesus to multiply this. My first thought's going to be like, we got to feed these people. What's the cheapest pizza place in town? And do we have enough money to provide for them real quick? That's what I'm thinking. We, we got to quit like being so harsh with the disciples sometimes. Like they're us. And that's really good news for us because Jesus is extremely patient with them. Unfortunately, a lot of times what happens in the church today is there's not a lot of patience in discipleship. You get it wrong once and you're kind of scolded or you're terrified to be wrong. But these guys are looking at Jesus and going, we got five loaves and two fish. Do you want us to go into town and buy food? They're being logical. They're not being crazy. Jesus isn't offended by natural stuff either. He's not looking at us and going, 
come on, guys. Why don't you live like it's supernatural? Why don't you live like heaven's here on earth right now? Come on, Peter. Didn't you just go heal a bunch of people and cast out demons? Goodness gracious. Aren't you guys going to figure this out? That's not Jesus. He doesn't discard them. He doesn't throw them away. He doesn't get confused by their questions. He embraces it because he sees exactly where they are. There's no mystery. How are we to do this? And he now understands exactly. Yeah, you don't know how we're going to do this. Watch. Bring it to me. Give me the sack lunch. Okay. And I don't think they gave him the sack lunch and like, everybody get ready. This is going to be awesome. I think they give him the sack lunch and are like, what in the world is he about to do with this? Five loaves and two fish, 15,000 people. He wants us to put them in pods of 50 each. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense, right? Like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll give each a loaf of bread. Well, that's only going to be five pods, and that's going to be more than, that's going to be less than ten to 15,000 people, Jesus. I, I don't think they're looking at this at, at all and going, oh, we know what he's about to do. But Jesus knows what he's doing. They are in a desolate place. It's late in the day. They're weary. They just want to get some rest. Just send them home, Jesus. And Jesus isn't done. This is the one miracle that is recorded in all four gospel accounts outside of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the only one that makes all four gospel accounts. It's this big. Jesus takes the loaves and the fish. He lifts them to the Lord. He prays a blessing, probably the common Jewish blessing. And then he breaks it and begins to disperse it to the disciples to be a fly that day, zooming around, watching that take place. I don't know what in the world that would look like. You just saw five loaves and two fish turned into enough to not only feed, it wasn't a snack for everybody. It says they ate and were satisfied. Verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied. What? And then they have 12 basketfuls of broken pieces left over. I'm going to take an aside here real quick, because here's the, the reality for some of you in this room, and probably it's not maybe many people in this room, is more, maybe some people are watching online, I don't know, but there's, this is happening a lot right now in our city. So if it's not you, I promise you, you probably know somebody that this is true of right now, and some of you, you feel like you're there and you're not sure what to do with it, but some people are in really desolate places right now. And like these, this crowd, the day is long, it's weary, it's hot, you're tired, and you feel like giving up. You're ready to throw in the towel. You're not sure about this thing called Christianity anymore. You're not sure about this Jesus. You're hungry, you're unsatisfied, you're thirsty, you're unsatisfied. You're in a desolate place and it looks hopeless. And when John records this story, John follows it up by, with Jesus' teaching that he's the bread of life. And then gives them this crazy teaching that you have to eat of my body and drink of my blood. And they're all like, what? 
But he's alluding to the communion that he, that he take together, that the Lord's Supper, that here's my body broken for you, here's my blood shed for you. And he's pointing to that, but he's saying, unless you partake of my flesh and my blood, you are not with me. But what Jesus is demonstrating here with the 5,000 is that even in desolate places, he is still enough. He will break himself and give of himself and give of himself. There's never an end to Jesus. There's never a moment where he's not able to satisfy he breaks his body and he continues to break of himself and break of himself to give of us. We break every week at our church. We take communion. That's why we're going to do this today. To remind ourselves that he breaks, he breaks, he breaks of his body and he gives it to us one time for all. But it's sufficient. It never runs out. The bread never runs out. In fact, there's an abundance. And it reminds me of Psalm 145, 16, where he says, you open your hands and satisfy the desires of every living thing. And so you sit there in the desolate place wondering, hoping, waiting, about to give up. And then this basket shows up. And the God-man has broken these five loaves and two fishes, this nothing sack lunch. And from it has produced a satisfying meal in the desolate place. And as one who has walked in desolate places... I promise you he's enough. Even when it feels dry and weary, he's there. He's still good. He's still God. And he's enough. This is who he is. Now we get to the question. Let me read 18 to 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one, tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus, sometime after this, goes to pray. I don't know how long after the feeding of the 5,000, 10, 15,000 that he goes to pray, but he goes to pray, and while he's praying, he asks his disciples a question. Now, Jesus is doing all the wrong things for a rabbi. No rabbi ever sent their disciples out. Jesus has already sent them out. No rabbi ever questions their disciples about them. They tell them who they are, and they, 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 they ask them questions, but they don't ask questions of the disciples. So Jesus is known for, I mean, he had women disciples. That was completely unheard of. It was a no-no. So, like, Jesus is upending everything which is exactly what he does all the time. And, and so Jesus asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, this isn't some insecure celebrity wanting to know, like, so what's the scuttlebutt? What's word on the street? What's everybody saying about me, huh? Is it good stuff? Are they saying I'm awesome? That's not Jesus here. Jesus is asking them because he just sent them out to the villages. Who do they say that I am? And isn't it interesting? They're saying the same thing that people said to Herod. He's either John the Baptist raised, Elijah, or one of the prophets of old raised. That's who they're saying. So if you're ever wondering, what did the people in Jesus' day think of who he was? They're telling you who they thought he was. After all that they've seen, their minds can only come around three possibilities. John the Baptist raised, Elijah, or a prophet of old raised. 
No one's saying he's God. A few have, but the majority, the crowds are not saying that. Then he asks, who do you say that I am? Now, these people have been with Jesus. These people have watched him. They've heard his teaching. They've seen his life. They've had to go find him when he was praying and people in town were trying to get to him. They know who Jesus is, right? And Peter responds, most likely for the group, as the leader of the group, and says, you are the Christ of God. Nailed it. <laughs> My name's Peter. I'll be taking questions later. I'm so sorry. I did it again. Peter gets it right. But Peter has no idea what he's saying. How do we know this? If you go to the Matthew account, Matthew 16, verse 22. I'll get to that in just a second. I'll get to that in just a second. Peter, Peter gets it right, but Peter doesn't know really what he's saying. Okay? You are the Christ of God. Now, that word Christ is a title. Here's the danger of our current moment, okay? We know Jesus is Christ. In fact, most people think it's his last name. It's not his last name. Jesus Christ is not his last name. Right? Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the anointed one of God. So Christ is the Greek word here, but Messiah would be our English word for the, the Hebrew word that, is, that would be translated. It's the same word, but it's the anointed one. So when he says you are the anointed one of God, the chosen one of God, the holy one of God, Peter's exactly right. But the understanding for people as they were looking to the Messiah is they were looking for a Messiah that would fall in line with the kingship of David. They were looking for a king to rule and reign, even though there's other texts that would have pointed to the Messiah being a prophet and a priest, not just a king. He would be prophet, priest, and king. In fact, those are the only three offices that were considered Messiahs, anointed ones. We're prophet, priest, and king. And what we see with Jesus is he's prophet, priest, and king. Now, they think king. And when they think king, they think a king is coming. And this king is going to establish Israel as a kingdom forever on the earth. Whose rule and reign will have no end. Meaning, whose rule and reigns have to end? All the other kingdoms of the world. So there goes Rome, right? There goes all the other China's dynasties. All the other ones, they're all gone. Because now Israel's kingdom will rule and reign on the earth. They're looking for a Messiah in the line of King David who will sit on the throne physically forever. So when they say you're the Christ of God, what they have in mind is king. You're the anointed king. They believe in the kingdom. They believe what's coming. But it's not quite accurate yet. Look at what Jesus says next. It says he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one about this. Doesn't that seem a little bit odd? At the beginning of the chapter, they're sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Here he's telling them, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. Well, what gospel of the kingdom are they proclaiming? Uh-oh. <laughs> what is happening? Is it just me that sees that? I'm like, they went out and proclaimed the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom, but he's straight-faced telling them, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. If you sent someone out right now to another country and said, go preach the gospel, don't tell a soul that Jesus is the Christ. What? First of all, no agency is going to send you. What? Whoa, 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 what's going on? They don't fully, listen, they are proclaiming the kingdom of God. It is here. It is now. But it's not fulfilled yet. Jesus still has not fulfilled the work. That's why he says what he says next. And this is the first time he lets them in on the plan. Look what he says. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes 
and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, if you think Peter, James, John, the apostles, the other disciples that are gathered that day heard that and were like, that's what I thought Isaiah was saying. <laughs> I mean, this whole time, I wasn't really buying into the Pharisees' version of Old Testament stuff. I really did have this funny feeling that when the Messiah comes, he's going to suffer and die. <laughs> Nailed it again. No, they're looking at Jesus going, you've got to be kidding me. I just said you're the Christ of God. And your response to that is they're going to kill me? You're supposed to rule and reign forever. Now, if you don't think that this is what's happening, Matthew 16, 22, the same story. Matthew gives us a little more insight. You know what Peter says in verse 22 to Jesus? Away with such a thought. This will never happen to you. You know what Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. <laughs> I mean, like, think about, like, Peter looks at Jesus and straight-faced rebukes the Son of God. That ain't happening to you with passion. It's an exclamation point. Not happening. And Jesus looks at him and says, not today, Satan, not today. You are a hindrance to me. You're setting a trap for me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You want me to overthrow Rome. I have bigger plans, buddy. But what he didn't do to Peter, you ready? He didn't discard him. He didn't kick him out of the inner circle. In fact, next week, if you come to Redeemer, I'm going to preach it now. He's at the transfiguration on the mountain, still saying dumb stuff. You know why I like Peter so much? Peter, I, I resonate with Peter. And anyone that knows me knows what I'm about to say. I will say some very bold things and be dead wrong a lot of the time. But I'm not afraid to say it. And I'm not afraid to be rebuked and corrected. And I praise God when I see how he treats Jesus, that he doesn't discard me. Because I say stupid stuff sometimes. Because Peter also says some powerful, spot-on, right things too. Because he learns and he grows. And Jesus is patient. He tells him not to say anything because Herod tried to kill him once. Herod, Tetrarch's father, when he was born. And this Herod, if he finds out that this is the Christ, the king of Israel, what everyone thought, he would come after him and try to kill him then too. And Jesus knew the plan. This is not how this was going down. I'm going to give of myself willingly. No one will take my life. I will lay it down. So when he says don't tell anyone, it's because Herod's starting to ask questions. And that's not how this is going down. Because their understanding was the Christ was going to be the king that was going to sit on the throne forever. And Jesus needs to show them, oh, no, 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 no. I am. But it's not the way you think. Because when I come into Jerusalem, I'm not coming in on a white valiant horse to rule and reign. I'm coming in on a humble donkey and I'm going to suffer a criminal's cross. And I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected by your chief priests, your elders, 
and your scribes. I'm going to suffer and die, and I'm going to come back three days later. Who do you say Jesus is? Maybe you have the right answer. But you don't fully understand what it really means. How do you know if you understand what it means that he's the Christ of God? If we understand that he's the Christ of God, it's not evidenced by how much we say all the right things. It's evidenced by the transformation in our lives as we begin to submit to Jesus as the Christ of God. As the prophet, priest, and king. As the one who has come and bled and died and then told us, this is your way forward too. Humility. Laying down your life, your rights, your freedoms for the sake of others. Giving of yourself so that others may live. Being generous, cheerful, sacrificial in your giving and in your time. In your hospitality, you welcome people. You don't shove them away. You don't send them away. You seek to feed them. You go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the fullness of it, because we have that full message now. And you seek to heal diseases. You seek demons to come out. You still seek to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, knowing that one day fully, when Jesus returns, the kingdom will be fully and finally here forever. Who do you say Jesus is? Are you like Herod this morning? You're perplexed. You're not quite sure. You think he's a good dude. <laughs> you just don't know where to peg him. You just don't think he's God. Are you like the Pharisees that think he's Beelzebub? He's Satan. Are you like Peter that calls him the Christ of God, but maybe you don't really fully understand what that means. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It simply means you need, to, you need to grow in your understanding of what it means that Christ, Jesus, is the Christ of God. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take communion. And I just want to say this, that if you're not sure of who you are this morning, <laughs> like often our answers about who Jesus is really reveal about us. It does. Man, I'm available to talk to you. I'd love to answer any questions you have. Go get coffee with you later. Don't, don't walk out of here today still confused. If you're in a desolate place, talk to us. Talk to somebody. Can, can this be a safe place for people to finally be vulnerable and not maybe put on the Sunday best all the time that, I'm happy, everything's great, but you're dying inside? Like, if you know anything about me, I'm super vulnerable, maybe too vulnerable sometimes. I'm very open about my own struggles and things I struggle with. You're safe with me. And I know that's terrifying for some people to hear a pastor say that because of your view of pastors, but I'd love to show you and earn your trust. But I just want to pray for us. Can I do that? So let's pray. Father, I just thank you this morning for your word. I thank you that in desolate places you continue to satisfy. I thank you that whatever our answer to that question, who do we say that you are, doesn't actually define you at all. It is a settled matter. You are who you are. You are not dependent on man's testimony. You're not insecure. You're not asking questions to try to figure out who you are. You don't need a tribe. You don't need a, a, a fan base. You don't need a cheerleading section. You don't need any of those things. You are not an insecure God. You've never had a fat day. Like you've never looked in the mirror and questioned yourself. You know who you are. You are truly holy human and you're fully divine. 
And you have come to save us, which is mean to make us whole. Not just to give us heaven, but to make us whole humans. We are broken. We are insecure. We are fragile. We are scared and timid. And we are a basket of emotions and everything else. But Jesus, you're steady. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we don't know what that's like. In fact, I think that kind of stuff terrifies us because it seems too good to be true. It seems too real or too abnormal, maybe. I don't know how anyone's answering that question today. Who do you say Jesus is? But would you help us understand fully who you are and then to live our lives in accordance with what we truly believe about you, to be transformed and then to seek the transformation of our city by becoming those who proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit with which you send us out with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.